Hello and welcome back to the True Crime Guys podcast. I'm Lauren. And I'm Michael. Woo, baby, how we doing? Ooh, I'm doing good, man. I'm back. At, I'm in my new studio. First time. Oh, Mike's in the new I studio. made my deadline. Yeah. Which I, I made for myself. I'm in my bedroom. I've got the mixer on my bed. I've got nice. a comforter over my window so that you guys can't hear my rooster crow outside. Very professional. Yes, it's... It's very fancy. It's, it's just how you guys imagined it when you were listening to this. <laughs> right. You, just how you imagined this well-produced podcast to be recorded. Um, right. Hey, dude, we've been there. I'm, I was there. You know, when you're in between studios, it's nice to have that space, but the beauty about podcasting is as long as you have a quiet space and you can get into it and get into the zone, you can podcast anywhere. Like I seen yep. a, I seen a picture that Leroy Luna put up of, uh, excuse me, that's illegal, you know, of... Uh, Jack Luna's little brother, or does he go with little brother? No, little brother. Anyways, he put up a video uh, or a picture of him on Twitter recording, and he's like under a blanket. <laughs> he's like, literally looks like yep. he's sitting on the floor under a blanket with a microphone, and look at his sound quality. It sounds it sounds amazing. It sounds amazing. You got to do what you got to do, man, to get started. Yeah, and when you're, in, when, you're, when you're inside of a childhood Ford, it kind of like... I feel like you know, if anything, it helps you get into the into the because everything is cut yeah. off. It's like a, sem- a sensory deprivation tank, almost like that's you're true. Focused on the story, you're focused on the podcast. There's no distractions. Yeah, maybe literally. Had What's a, funny is when we first met there. and we first when we first started doing the podcast. I I remember I was the one with the studio. I yes. I created a studio for the show, and you would come over, and we would. I had an elaborate studio, and now you're the one with the elaborate studio, and I'm recording it because I moved and. <laughs> Right. Obviously, things change over the years. We've been doing this for over four years now. So, right. I'm still waiting for to finish. I've got an unfinished basement, and so once that's that gets finished, there's going to be a studio section down there for sure. But hell yeah, that's going to be awesome. Yeah, it'll be awesome. Yeah. Not so, so much like this case though. This case is not awesome. Not awesome things. Yeah, happen. and by then, by the time I have a studio, my kids will probably be getting close to teenage years, and then I'll be scared because these teenagers are scary, as we've talked about before. They are, man. This is an instance. This is another example. All the way back in the 1950s. Teenagers were scary back then, too. People still didn't know what the hell was going on. You know? Yep. We still have like hiding all my bricks on my property. Yes. Hide all your knives. Just, oh, man. You know, before I go to bed, it's like sometimes there'll be stuff laid out, you know, from dinner or whatever. We don't feel like cleaning up everything. But I always put all the knives away. You know what I mean? It's like, Mm-hmm. Just in case, put all these knives away. If someone breaks into my house, I don't want it to be. I don't want to give them a weapon. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. I don't want to give them a weapon. I don't know what brought that up. That's, but, that's uh, just so much worse to get stabbed by your own knife. You know? Seriously, stabbed by your own <laughs> knife. It's bad enough oh, getting stabbed. Damn it! I don't need it to be the knife I bought at fucking IKEA or something. <laughs> right. Like, I, don't I paid for that. <laughs> right. I don't want it to be my favorite cutlery knife that I've used to exactly. cut so many foods that I loved over the years. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Unless you you've been really like procrastinating on sharpening the knife, and then it's no good, and you just kind of laugh at it. I'm like, ha ha. Finally, <laughs> I'm rewarded for being lazy. <laughs> then the, then when they stab you, it hurts worse. Like ah oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how do we turn getting stabbed into something comical? All right. Hey, that's what we do. That's what we do. Yep. That's why All we're right. here, people. <clears throat> but this, we this case has nothing to do with getting stabbed, though. It doesn't. No. Uh, it doesn't. Bludgeoned? Yes. Bludgeoned. There is a violent murder in this, but there's no knife. No knife. So there you go, guys. Rest easy yep. if you don't like stab murders. And we're going to New Zealand. Ooh, uh, dude, have we we ain't been to New Zealand in a long time. If if, if have we ever? I, I was that the 
I was can't. the mass shooting the Port Arthur? Was that in New Zealand? No, that was in Australia, right? Port Australia, Arthur, that's right. Okay, yeah. I get, well, obviously they're pretty similar. I know close, they're very but. close. Yeah, but I don't think we've done a New Zealand case specifically. If we have, I can't. Re- I don't remember it. But such a beautiful place. If I had to move to another country, that would be on my short list. It's it is a beautiful, beautiful place. The American really dollar is. goes goes pretty far. I was looking into it. I'm like, oh, really? I wonder if I could afford a place there. <laughs> oh, okay. But once you go, man, that's there a long you flight. You probably you better commit. You're not coming yeah. back. Yeah, not for a while. You better stay for a little bit, man. Or stay yeah. for a little bit. I mean, you've talked about it before. You do love you love the Australian people. You know, the New mm-hmm. Zealand people are probably very similar. Yep. You know, I would think. Very similar cultures. What a beautiful place too, New Zealand. My God. Like, wasn't it known as Bird Island way back? Because, like, all that was there was birds before people came over and started bringing animals. And now it's like, you know, it's got a a plethora of wildlife and stuff now. But I think way back before humans ever touched it, it was just nothing but birds. Wow. Yeah, probably. fascinating. That sounds accurate. (laughs) Because, I mean, how else (laughs) would I mean, you have to fly there to get there, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so. Exactly. Maybe, like, alligators, probably the only other thing there. Fucking reptiles, man. Right. Can't Walking get rid of them. Sh- ground sharks, land yeah. sharks. Ground sharks, land sharks, yeah. They're definitely there. Now I want a beer. Let's do this. <laughs> was the mother awake, asleep? Was she... Went, oh, she was awake. You, what, did you, you jumped on her or something? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this all happened very quickly. It was within a space of... We, my parents were separating. My father had lost his job. We were about to leave the country. And I felt I had no time to find a better solution. She told me that if I left, it would be, she would take her own life, and I believed her. Bali adieu, Bali adieu. Wherever you're going, I'm coming to. Bali adieu, I'll follow you. I know you're crazy, but I'm crazy too. Bali adieu, I promise you, I would live with bronchitis if you didn't too. Bali adieu, in the Zealand of new, reality distorted by a fourth world view. And, and when you are that age, you're not allowed to speak. And cordially. Yes. So you cannot say anything about what you did or why you did it. So you're not allowed to... For mitigating circumstances, you're not allowed to no. give your side of it. No, not at all. I think it would have been the worst thing that could ever have happened to me in my life if somehow they'd said, well, look, you know, you were under medical treatment, these are mind-distorting drugs, I'm sure you're not really wicked, you go ahead and forget about it. I think that would have been totally destructive to me. Bali adieu, Bali adieu, wherever you're going, Bali adieu, I'll follow you. I know you're crazy, but I'm crazy too. Bali adieu, I promise you, I would live with bronchitis if you didn't too. Bali adieu, in the Zealand of new, reality distorted by a fourth world view. All right, for our case this week, we are going to New Zealand. Oh, let's go. Down to Bird Island. Down uh, to Bird Island, man. Beautiful yeah. place. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful place to, to murder your mom, you know? Well, I mean, if you had to pick a place, 
It's better than like murdering your mom in Seattle. Then it's just like so depressing. You know, one I mean, of the most bizarre murder weapons mm. we've ever seen. I would say, right? I mean, uh, yeah, definitely very, very primal. Yes, you know, very, very uh, Cain and Abelish. Yeah. <laughs> if I if I could say, uh, yeah, very, very barbaric. But I guess when it when it's uh, committed by someone of such a young age with so little life experience, they didn't have access to all these different weapons, right? Yes. Yeah. I, it, um, I don't really know why they chose that. They could have chosen anything, you know. Like they they had time to prepare for this crime, mm-hmm. and they they seems like they chose this because it was a primal weapon. You know, they they were very theatrical people. This was a this is really kind of a love story, young love. Hmm. It is. It is. Good call, Lorne. Young love, love and and a barrier in this young love's way that had to be broken down. Yeah, or at least something they viewed as a barrier. Yes. Well, technically, it was a barrier. I don't think uh, the victim in this was going to allow them to leave and go where they wanted to go. Oh, I I agree. But, I mean, they were just a few years from adulthood. True. So, if they, you know, as the old saying goes, if you truly were meant to be together, they'd be together. They'd figure it out. Yep. Or they would forget about each other in a couple years, like most teenagers do, going through a million phases. Yes. That <laughs> is ultimately fully... what happened. Yeah. <laughs> so you think about it. <laughs> oh, no. You're kidding me. Yeah. So Teenager cue went the, through a crazy phase. Cue the My Chemical Romance. Teenagers scare the living shit out of me. This is uh, another case where teenagers early. are very scary, especially when they, when they plot together. True um, that. The first one we're going to talk about was young Juliet Hume, who was born on October 28th, 1938, shares a birthday with Bill Gates, Julia Roberts, and Joaquin Phoenix. Oh, I gotta wow. go with Joaquin is my favorite out of that group. Great uh, actor. Man, uh, my favorite is Julia Roberts, man. Oh, she's great too. Yeah, she's pretty classy. woman. Bill Gates kind of annoys me, but she's no, classy. Whatever. She's classy, beautiful. Julia Roberts is. I know Bill Gates has done done some great like charity work and things like that. So props to him, but he's also like annoying. Yeah, and he's also trying to like microchip us or something, right? Yeah, he wants yeah. the world to be synthetic. Like he wants like the the Lorax world. What's yeah. that city in Lorax? Yeah, exactly. Don't, don't be remember, doing but that to us. He wants everything to be plastic and synthetic and yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's garbage. <clears throat> so and then and then I just I love the movie Signs. So Walking I like that a little bit more than Pretty Woman. Both great mil- movies, mm, but Yeah. Signs. I mean, I love I love Walk the Line too. I liked his Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I love he's how in he a lot of great Johnny show. Cash. Yeah. yeah. I haven't seen the new Joker movie with him in it though. So Me neither. We should check that out. Apparently it's super dark. Oh yeah, you know, you know, I did see it. It was very artsy, right, and like kind of out there. Yeah, which yeah. suits this case. These these two young teenage girls, they were very uh-huh. fantastic, artsy, artsy, and out artsy. there. Yes. Yeah, they were. Yes. So Juliet Hume, born in 1938 in Blackheath, London, uh, she was the daughter of a physicist, a brilliant man named Dr. Henry Hume, who uh, had knowledge in quantum physics and theory, and he was part of the Manhattan Project. This guy was wow. a part of a lot of shit. I think I don't even know if. A lot of the stuff he was a part of would even be common knowledge, or it was probably, you know, kind of hidden because he. I mean, oh, okay. when you're a part of the Manhattan Project, you're in, you're involved in some stuff, and like, right, right. They had a lot of secret government projects going on back in those days when war was. You were trying to beat out. You're basically trying to survive. It was the the nuclear times when everybody was afraid of getting bombed and their country not existing anymore. And right. he was one of the most brilliant men in the world during this time. Wow, yeah, it's quite a reputation. Yeah. 
Yeah, so that's Juliet's father, and uh, he met and married Juliet's mother, Hilda, in 1936, and uh, Juliet and and Henry had completely opposite personalities. Hilda was a very social uh, woman and loved to go out, and Henry was reserved and wanted to stay inside and work on his studies. Um, you, <laughs> I could just picture him in a, you know, in like a an office type slash lab and just yeah whiteboard drawing up theories and testing it's, things and I think it's interesting how often this couple matchup happens right because how yeah. o- I mean how else are people who stay inside and only work on their studies going to meet someone <laughs> then it has meet to someone who's outgoing enough to come up exactly to them in public <laughs> and be forward <laughs> enough yeah exactly they're going to meet someone that's so yeah. outgoing to overcome their stay away from me vibe right you know yeah and so that person doesn't change once they yeah. get married. And so two years after they met, Henry and Hilda had a baby. They named her Juliet. She was born right around the start of World War II. And being in London, the family went through a lot of uh, you know tough times being in London oh, during World War II. As a baby, Juliet is thought to have developed PTSD due to the frequent bombings that England endured during the war. Wow. Never really thought about that. You know, like, man, that the effect that that must have had on uh, children at that time. Right. In in like Europe when the world wars were going down, like just all the bombings and like the effect that that would have, like just being basically well, sheltered in place in your home and hoping that your house isn't going to explode at any minute. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, well, I just think about the effect that when we get a when we get a really bad thunderstorm, the effect that it had yeah. on my kids when they were younger, and my my youngest daughter now, she still is terrified if we get like a crack and thunder just right over the house, even though they know that's natural. Mm-hmm. But imagine. If you knew that that wasn't natural, if you knew that that was bombs, well, you know you how they, them... they talk about uh, uh, your genet your your genetics and like uh, the, the history that your bloodlines have, like in your DNA, like you were like you have these memories, or at least you, your your DNA has these memories of things right. that happened to your ancestors in the past. They talk about rats that they you know they they pump a smell in uh, to a, their cage and then they shock their feet when the smell goes in and then when that rat procreates the babies of that rat if they pump a smell in that rat starts freaking out because it thinks its feet are going to get shocked it thinks it's going to be harmed even though it never had that experience its parents had that experience oh, okay. it makes you wonder if the thunder thing maybe maybe children of people that uh, experienced war times maybe they're a little bit more afraid of thunder because it's so similar to bombing you know the sounds of it the the crackling thunderous sounds who knows i don't know this is me being fucking bro sciencey here yeah Uh, okay interesting interesting you never know well they say that uh like kids are afraid of of monsters and like uh like the the face when we go at them because as far back as you know uh human humans go that when they were living in caves and stuff they were afraid to get eaten on a daily basis and so like kids are naturally afraid of monsters for that reason yeah it is funny that you are when you're little you are afraid of be, like being consumed entirely mm-hmm. i do i do remember having that specific fear like because yeah, it was a real it was a real fear to have for, for most of human history they were afraid to get eaten yeah i guess so and it also just seems like the worst possible thing and i think as a child that's just like the worst nightmare you know what I mean? Yeah. And you feel so small as a child. You feel like a snack. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like right. you're little. You're little. So yeah, I think that's that's totally normal. That's a totally normal fear. That's the first thing that like my kids will talk about. You know, oh, I had this dream that something ate me. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's just it's very it's very common. Comes up a lot. Yeah. So after a little while, uh, Juliet would end up having a little brother uh, when her when her father Henry and mother Hilda had a, a young boy named Jonathan. 
Hilda was not thought to be the most warm and loving mother, however. She mentioned uh, that Juliet wanted too much attention, and she was very <laughs> wow. cold as a mother. Something we see often with uh, people that go on to kill people is a very cold, motherly presence. Not right, warm, not right. loving. Yeah, a, a very a distant relationship. Mm-hmm. Juliet also suffered from multiple serious childhood illnesses, including pneumonia, bronchitis, and tuberculosis. And hey, landed nobody her in the got time for any bit. of those, you know? Yeah. Nobody. It, it's another common thread. That's, um, a lot of the murderers we've covered, they had some sort of serious illness as a child that almost killed them. And more importantly, separated them from society, though. Yes. Oh, yeah. That's the big, think, a big part of it, the isolation involved with that, especially in, uh, when you're talking in the 40s. You know, she would have been a, a you know, young girl in the 40s and a teen in right. the early 50s. And, like, what else is there to do? Like, when you're in a hospital then, like, there's no TV to watch. There's, there's no phone. You can look at Instagram. You're just there. You're just sitting there. I guess you could read and write. But yes. it must have been very lonely and isolated, you know. And they did do that a lot. They did write a lot. Yes, both, definitely, like both definitely. of these girls wrote, and a lot. they developed one hell of a um, uh, an imagination. Both of these young girls. Yes. That we haven't got to the other one. We're about to. That's but. the only way to escape, bro. If you got nothing else, you know, it's not mm-hmm. like they had iPads. Yep. <laughs> Delve deep into your brain and come up with some amazing stuff, like Fourth World, which we'll talk about. <laughs> yes, like the Fourth World. Due to her illness, Juliet was sent to the Bahamas to spend time with family at one point when she was young, um, with the thought that the warm weather would help her get better. You know, we've talked about that with some of these uh, diseases, like uh, uh, moving them to moister uh, regions, like back in mm-hmm. the uh, Wild West times. You know, everybody would get to, what was that? That uh, the lung disease that everybody would get. Was it tuberculosis everybody would get in the Wild West? I think it all was. The dust? Yeah, yeah, I think it was tuberculosis. Yeah, so they would move to like a moister, warmer climate. Bahamas would be a good a good spot for sure. Yeah, it's like a very moist climate. Oh yeah, absolutely tropical down there off the coast of Florida for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, then she would move be moved again this time to live with friends and family in the Bay of Islands in New Zealand. So it's it's almost like her family was in a sense trying to get rid of her. Uh, it just always felt like that, didn't it? Through this whole case, well, you just keep she just Juliet wanted just so keeps much getting attention. relocated everywhere, away from her parents. Yeah, she just wanted so much attention, Lauren, and they didn't have yeah, time. Right. They had God forbid your daughter wants some attention. Careers, <laughs> they had their own <laughs> lives to worry about. God, why is she yeah. here anyway? Oh, oh her dad's right. trying to solve trying to solve the the a bomb equation. He's <laughs> trying to <laughs> <Right>. bomb people. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, uh, it doesn't really mention. If their father, other than that, it mentions his reputation, but not so much. I couldn't find anything as far as his role in her life, how their relationship was. I think that there was, was kind of non-existent. There, w- there was a moment later on, after or leading up to what they do, where like they want to run away, the two girls, and he has a sit down and talk to them, and kind mm-hmm. of changes their mind. I guess he had when he spoke, he chose his words wisely, and he he. He was well, obviously a man that had a lot of experience and knew a lot right. of people and was a part of big things. And like he was able to talk them out of wanting to move and like because they, they just couldn't stand it anymore where they were. They wanted to get away. And, right, right. So, but yeah, I guess he stepped in at time to time, but I feel like he was mostly busy and not, not too attentive. I kind of got that vibe needs. as well. Yeah. And then his so mother was just too consumed with trying to go out and meet people she was well you know here's another way of looking at it maybe the mother was just overwhelmed because she was basically a single parent to the daughter Mm -hmm. you know what i mean she had to give her all the attention she had to be the one who listens all the time she had to be the one that that tucks her in every night you know what i'm saying like she had Mm -hmm. to be 
every single time. And that could be exhausting for anyone. You know what I'm saying? That's very possible. That's only human nature. You're going to get exhausted. You're going to, you need some time for yourself to reset. Mm. So I'm just looking at it from a different point. You know what I'm saying? Oh, no doubt. No doubt. Yeah, so Juliet's at this time living in the Bay of Islands in New Zealand, uh, far away from her family yet again. Eventually, Juliet's father, Henry, um, however, got a job as the director at Canterbury College in Christchurch, New Zealand, and the family moved to New Zealand, um, and Juliet would would move over to Christchurch from the Bay of Islands and join her family and was finally reunited, and now they were living in New Zealand. Wow. Uh, now, let's like meet the... A... Go, go ahead. I was going to say, it sounds like you got a pretty prestigious uh, position there. Oh, definitely. Director at Canterbury College. Man, mm-hmm. how do you get to... Talk about a religious place. They call the the, the town Christ is Christchurch. Christ That's insane. <laughs> like, the first time I read through the article, I was like, he got a... There's a college and a church? I was like, wait a minute. Let me see. What, what am I looking at here? Christchurch is Christ the town. Christchurch, yeah. New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. It's just... It's one word. Christchurch. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Yeah, that, very that, holy uh, place. Huh? Very holy place. Yeah, very holy place, and that that's also uh, what makes this case so weird. Yeah, right. <laughs> a very unholy thing happened yeah. in a very holy place. So the next character in this um, is Pauline Parker. She was born on May 26, 1938 in Christchurch, New Zealand. So she was born where uh, Juliet had just moved to. Um, and she shares a birthday with Stevie Nicks, Miles Davis, and John Wayne. What a cool group of people. Oh, that cool. that cool might be group. the coolest group. You know, <laughs> like you could say what you want about the other groups of people, but like the coolest, yeah. like that's a cool group. This right here is a timeless group. The Duke, group. Miles this, Davis, and Stevie yeah. Nicks. I mean, come on. This is a timeless group right here. Seriously. Yeah. All all generations can can find something to appreciate in these these people. And yet all I can think about with that group of greats is the guy, the, the guy on the skateboard with the with the fucking cranberry juice. <laughs> I think of Stevie Nicks. I think, yeah. <laughs> I think of Fleetwood uh, Mac, dog and face. then I think of that dude skateboarding, drinking cranberry Freaking juice dog for some face. reason. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> God damn it, the internet. I know, right? Shit, man. I can't even enjoy some Fleetwood Mac without thinking Dude, of a guy skateboarding. Drinking listen, you ask my you ask my kids where any famous song is from, and they're like, "Oh, it's from that TikTok video," or "That's from a, <laughs> that's from a Vine." I'm like, "No, it's not. It's that's the, the 70s, fucking God Rolling Stones. Holy shit!" <laughs> TikTok was something a clock did when that song was made. Damn it! Right. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> Holy TikTok and going on around here. <laughs> Oh shit! All yeah. right, we better we better get going, man. This is crazy tangents. So, so Pauline Parker uh, was born in New, uh, New Zealand. She was born around the same time mm-hmm. um, as Juliet. Uh, and Pauline's real last name should have been Reaper, which would have made this case kind of creepier, actually, because her father's uh, her father's name was Herbert Reaper. Um, but okay. before Pauline was born, Herbert had been in an unhappy marriage with his wife Louis, uh, Louisa Reaper. They had two boys together prior to Pauline's birth, um, and he ended up meeting a twenty-two uh, a woman that was twenty-two years younger than his wife, named Honora Parker. And right. her father uh, Herbert ran off with this younger woman, and they ended up having some kids. And Pauline was uh, the daughter that they had together. And so her name technically is Pauline Reaper. There was some like weird weird stuff is involving. Uh, well, the court, the way that they looked at it was like, oh, you were just going to give you Parker because of this, this or whatever. Her name. Maybe they weren't uh, legally married, and then she had a choice. Right. And maybe they were like, you know, even though Honora was going by Honora Reaper, maybe that wasn't her real name. And so just 
in the hospital they went with that. I mean, because you can you don't have to give them the father's last name. You know, yeah, I think that's, even that's back what they then. chose to do. That's what I find weird is like because just because uh, the the new woman that he runs off with takes his last name of Reaper, and and then technically her name uh, wasn't Reaper. It has nothing. It shouldn't have anything to do with the daughter that they had. It should go off the father's name typically, especially at this time. And yeah, so her he, name should have been Pauline Reaper. Yeah, I guess so. Well, maybe she chose to have it Parker. Maybe she didn't want her having the last, same last name as her stepbrothers. Mm-hmm. Or half brothers. Yeah, that's rather, that's right? yeah, that's or something that's like possible. that. Yeah, who knows? Yeah. Who so, knows? Herbert and his his new young love, uh, Honora, they started moving around, and Honora started going by the name Honora Reaper, even though that they hadn't gotten married and never would. They would go on to have four children together, including Pauline. And at age five, Pauline was diagnosed with osteomyelitis. Osteomyelitis. Which uh, is something I had never heard of prior to this, but it sounds pretty brutal. It's an infection in the bone, uh, which can reach a bone by traveling through the bloodstream and spreading from nearby tissue infections and can be also begin in the bone itself as an injury exposed the bone to germs. And it's supposed mm. to be very painful. That seems um, as you can yeah, imagine. really rare as well. You know, yeah. it's got to be yeah. like you, you get some kind of like you're in some kind of crazy accident where you're, mm -hmm. you know, lacerated by something like maybe a piece of metal or something. Because that just right. seems such a rare way. Or to like get what that happened point. with Alex Smith, where you had that he had that like uh, spiral fracture of his leg, and then there was uh, he had a super bad infection that went went septic, and he like almost lost his leg, and then almost lost his life. Like Holy that, shit, the I could see because Alex his bone Smith? was shattered in a bunch of pieces, and then they had bacteria in there. I could see that like maybe that once they put the, the bone back together, you could have something like this. I don't know if he ever did have osteomyelitis, but. Seems like that would be a way to get it. It was like a bad fracture that got bacteria in it. Yeah. But what's oh weird God. is like she did, it didn't say that she actually broke a bone or anything like that. It just seemed to somehow spread into her bone. I don't know. Yeah. Well, there's lots of ways it probably could in the 50s, man. Mm -hmm. You know, medical, medical field wasn't what it is now. True. <clears throat> so this condition left Pauline with severe chronic leg pain well into her teens. In 1952, Pauline Parker Reaper and Juliet Hume met at Christchurch Girl, Christ Girls High School. At the time, they were both about 14. Um, they met and really clicked right away because they had common ground and that neither were able to participate in school activities because of their health conditions. So they were two right. young girls that had been kind of uh, lonely and isolated because they were different and they had these health issues. And they, It's a perfect scenario yes. for them. They got to just spend time together. It's not they when they didn't have to participate in these things. They were the only two girls sitting over to the side, you know, probably yeah. sharing stories that they've written and just collaborating because yeah, their their health struggles were far from all that they had in common. They both had a love for fantasy, right? Being that the these girls were different and often isolated as children, they spent a lot of time alone prior to meeting each other, and these conditions would have lended themselves to fantasy and daydreaming and. Uh, a lot of creativity and writing and uh, coming up with stories and things like that. And they just right away they 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 had. They were just like, I, I, in a way, you could call them nerds or whatever, where they just loved, like nowadays, they would have probably been big comic book fans or something along those lines. But like back then, they they loved, uh, they loved like uh, opera and plays. And well, yeah. And I think now they would feel a lot less lonely, though, 
they wouldn't even need just each True. other because they could, you know, they could find people on forums, Twitter, mm-hmm. and Reddit, and everything else, you know, to find these people with common grounds. That is these a good point. I didn't think very about. specific clubs on Facebook, you know, so they could actually find more community. Which they they, they might have been on our them. true crime guys uh, Facebook private group. Right. Yeah. See, <laughs> talking could... about true crime. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Be yeah. a different case. So soon the girls became inseparable. They wrote books, short stories, and plays together, and they would even act out the plays. They created new names for each other. Uh, Pauline became Gina, and Juliet became Deborah. And for a while really? there, I was re- like, I, when I started it? going when I started going through Pauline Parker's diary, which we'll get to a lot of uh, stuff out of her diary. They, they, the name Deborah kept coming up. Like, I'm like, who the hell's Deborah? Like, <laughs> oh crap! And then I was like, wait a second. I went research. back in the crime line. I'm like, oh, that's right. She, she was Juliet was known sometimes by Deborah. It was, it was kind of weird. It's like they ch- pick and chose when they called each other these these alternate names. And what, dude? Let's talk about these alternate names for a little bit. Really. How how imaginative can you possibly? Gina <laughs> right, Deborah, and Deborah of all names, like one of the most bland, kind of vanilla names. Deb- I think Juliet is a. <laughs> like, no, Juliet has more. I, if, if I feel like if I was Deborah, I'd much rather be like I'm going to go to Juliet. That sounds more. Yes, Juliet is already a magical like fantasy name. It's the it's Romeo and Juliet. Like it's perfect. Yeah. yeah. Even Pauline is better than Gina, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, you create no offense the if, you're na- world, if your name's but... Gina or Deborah, and you're listening. No, to this no, right now. no. I'm just saying. I'm not saying that they're they're fine <laughs> names. They're fine names. I'm just saying if you were people who loved fantasy and yeah. were just so engulfed in this, you think you would name them something like Aragon or some shit? You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know <laughs> something magical. Yeah. It just surprised me when I read that. I, I laughed out it loud. It reminds me of uh, Zach and Mary make a porno. There's a scene in that where Jason Muse, he's like he's auditioning for for to be in the porno. Yeah, and like he's he tells them their name, his name, and he's like, yeah, yeah, my name's uh, Lester the Molester Cockenstaub. And they're like, oh my god, that's an amazing porn name. And he's like, I can have a porn name. Then I'll be <laughs> Pete Jones. It's <laughs> <laughs> so stupid. He's like, I can have a porn name. Oh my god. <laughs> I'm sorry, I haven't seen that movie. It, yeah, it's it's great. That's that, where that movie's great. where the the Dutch rudder thing came from. There's a lot of that, that movie's classic. Okay, freaking. Uh, if you're a fan of um, Seth uh, Rogen, what's his name? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, Seth Rogen's in it as well. But uh, Jason Long, or is that, is that his name? Jason Long, Justin Long, Justin Long, Justin Long's yeah. in it, and he plays a gay porn actor. Oh, okay, <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> he is funny, man. He's funny. Yeah. Them guys together. Their their movies are underrated. They're really funny. They're really fun movies to go back and rewatch. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So as we mentioned, the, the two young girls they became inseparable, writing books and short stories together, um, and and really spent every waking moment together that they could. Um, they created. They even created their own religion, which is pretty. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pretty that's sacrilege not, back then. In that's the 50s not alarming and you're living at in a town called Christchurch and you're creating your own religion. That's pretty risque. Yeah. They're like, uh, we already got one. Thanks. Yeah, we already got one. It's, <laughs> it's all you need. All is fine. Thanks. You're going to hell. <laughs> yeah, so in their religion, instead of heaven, there was fourth world. Um, oh, and this okay. is from Pauline Parker's diary because she had a diary in 1953 and in 1954 when all of this was going down. And there, that's where we get a lot of the information firsthand from Pauline. And uh, in regards to Fourth World, let's hear her explanation of it. Uh, This is from April 3rd, 1953, Pauline Parker's diary. She says, quote, Today Juliet and I found the key to the Fourth World. We realize now that we have had it in our possession for about six months, but we only realized it on the day of the death of Christ. We saw a gateway through the clouds. 
We sat on the edge of the path and looked down the hill over the bay. The island looked beautiful. The sea was blue. Everything was full of peace and bliss. Then we realized we had the key. We now know that we are not genie, genii, uh, as we thought. Uh, genii, you have to look into that. Uh, they're supernatural creatures in an early pre-Islamic Arabian and Islamic mythology. Uh, but they, they realize they're not genii anymore. We have an extra part of our brain, which we can appreciate, the fourth world. Only about 10 people have it. When we die, we will go to the fourth world. But meanwhile, on two days every year, we may use the key to look into the beautiful world that we have been lucky enough to be allowed to know of. On this day of finding the key to the way through the clouds. And if you can't tell, they spent quite a bit of time alone and <laughs> oh. had quite the imagination. Did they now? Did they? You know what? They, what's kind of a shame is that they really would have made a dynamic duo of like a writing team, like screenwriters. Yes, uh, they playwrights. Like they would have made fan. Like they would have made some amazing works of art if they would have stuck together and not killed someone. Uh, yes, yes. Both of those things were pretty crucial. Um, I think sticking together, they had that part down, but not killing someone—that was the difficult part. It's a difficult yeah. part for them. That's that's a little part where they went off the path. But yeah, they could have been. They could have been great writers. Well, well, they kind of we'll were, but they, they would have been, I think, prolific as adults. As they gotten older, they would have only gotten better. Their plan was to move to uh, Hollywood, as we'll see coming up in the in the story. But yeah, as far as the fourth dreams. world, uh, music, art, and creativity were held on a higher regard than Christianity in their in their fourth world. They worshipped <laughs> celebrities from their time and yeah. viewed them as being saintly figures in the fourth world. Uh, people among the likes of opera singer Mario Lanza, for example, they dreamed of moving to Hollywood together. Uh, as well. Yeah, they had big dreams, man. I mean, it was all the things that were despised in their time. You know, they're just being typical teenagers. They just took it too far. This is, this, this is how they rebelled then, you know? Yeah. You know, anything that was outside the realm of Christianity. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, in a in a conservative place like this, even even secular music, you know, as such as opera or, or rock and roll or anything like that, jazz, all that stuff is highly discouraged, mm-hmm. you know? So they felt starved for this stuff. For sure. Yeah. Culturally starved. The girls also created another imaginary place called Baravnia. It was an imaginary kingdom that they invented, uh, and they wrote extensively about this place and, and filled it with a large cast of characters, both noble and commoner. <laughs> From time to time, the girls would assume the identities of the characters in real life or would imagine themselves to be the characters in their visions of Baravnia. Baravnia was a violent, fun place full of action, romance, and intrigue. Mm. Sounds like... it. Could have been a film series, it's, you know, like the Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter or something. Yeah, it's just interesting that violent is the first word, you yeah, know, and I saw that a lot described. Like, that's what the, that was like one of the main things they wanted it to be, you know, it's violent. Mm-hmm. They didn't want it to be magical or full of wonder or happy endings. It's violent, <clears throat> fun. Violent, romantic. <laughs> and then the next word is we fun. make love over the blood of, our, uh, over the bodies of our victims. Right, right. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Yeah, that's um, that's that's so, a Baravnia uh, greeting right there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> that's a holiday. Yeah. Um, so as you can imagine, the, the, these girls' relationship—they're spending every waking moment together, daydreaming, uh, writing things, and and acting out plays. And and initially, the girls' parents were happy that they had made a friend, but after a while, they became concerned by the amount of time that they spent together, and also the seeming obsession that they had for each other. Uh, Pauline's mother and spe- uh, specifically was very concerned. Juliet's mother, while mildly concerned, continued in her ways of largely ignoring her daughter, too concerned with herself to care much, which meant that the girls would spend most of their time together at Juliet's house because she didn't care if, 
you know, Juliet had a friend over to spend the night or whatever, whereas Pauline's mother was always, she seemed to be much more uh, intentive and intrusive in her daughter's life, wondering what this relationship was like with this other girl and right. um, was very concerned that there may be a sexual element to her daughter's French, uh, friendship with Juliet. Yes, and I'm uh, sure. As we know, homosexuality and bisexuality were, were looked at much differently in the 50s than they are now in 2021. Oh, And absolutely. there's still, you know, unfortunately a stigma even today, um, but in the 50s it was like, to a lot of a lot of parents, unfortunately, back then, that was like the worst thing they could imagine is their child being gay, you know? Absolutely, especially in a small town, in a town called Christchurch, mm-hmm. nonetheless. Yeah, in a yeah, town called Christchurch, the, for sure. The parent is worrying as much about her reputation as she is about her daughter's at this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and honestly, we've talked about it before, but uh, a, a relationship can be very intense and passionate, and you can love a person and want to be with them, and it doesn't even have to have a sexual element. Uh, up until... You know, adulthood. They the, these girls said that there was never they had never done anything. They right. never there was never any sexual element to it. They just had an obsession for each other that was non sexual. Well, they had yeah, and they had a they had a close relationship, and they they had no reason to to hide this. Even later on mm-hmm. in those interviews and stuff, and in their diaries, if they did have a relationship, why wouldn't they write about it? I mean, they wrote about killing someone for Christ's sakes. I think they would write about. Uh, sleeping with each other and whatnot. Yes, and, definitely. I think there would be uh, definitely diary evidence if that had happened. Right. I just don't understand. They just that just put more fuel on the fire during this time mm-hmm. with these girls, and it just made them probably feel even more rebellious. You know, because yeah. they're because they're in their mind they're thinking, well, we're not even doing that. We're not doing anything wrong. You see what right. I'm saying? They were doing things that, although in a small town called Christchurch, things that would be frowned upon nonetheless, even if there was no actual sex involved. But, uh, for instance, one day in August of 1952, the girls were out riding bikes together. They came across the field with a large tree. They decided to take all of, all of their clothes and frolic in the field together. And they were also known to take baths together. So you could see, yeah, you I know, as, see a, that, but... as a religious parent, you know, your, your daughter's doing these things in the 50s, how that could be looked at. But also in the 50s, I feel like, um, like think about it. In the instance of school, right? It it was normal for even our parents to like bathe after PE with other students. Like there was locker rooms, shower yes. rooms. Like they were showering very true, very together. True. Shower, yeah, the whole group showering yes, thing was very. It was common very common up then. until basically our age. I think we were like where that stopped was like around the eight, like late eighties, early nineties yes. is kind of where that ended. It seemed like yeah, yeah, it did. So that was normal. So I mean, if you would shower together at school, why wouldn't you shower together at home or? Why would you feel mm-hmm. uncomfortable with this person, you know, being nude with them in a field or whatever? I mean, that's this is part of the fourth world, right? There's no rules here. This is a yeah. <laughs> this is a supernatural place, you know. So mm-hmm. you could see how they could get into those vibes and want to be that way. Yeah. Yeah. So during this time, Pauline began to resent her parents for not being more sophisticated and understanding like Juliet's parents. Um, <laughs> that wasn't and, even the and, case. It was just Juliet's parents didn't care. Juliet's parents were just absent, yeah. largely, and didn't really care what her daughter was doing. It wasn't that they were so, you know, sophisticated. Well, they were. They were sophisticated. Her father was, I guess. Yeah, they were. By definition, they were. They, her mother uh, definitely uh, looked down. Hilda looked down on people for sure. Right, right. And her father was, you know, one of the most brilliant men around. So I'm sure he, there was a, an element of that to him as well. But they weren't as understanding as Pauline looked at it, they were just, they just didn't care. You know, they were just like, whatever, she's doing her thing. (laughs) Leave us alone. We're fine. Right, right, right. Um, But 
evidence to the way that Pauline was feeling is seen in her diary from April 23rd, 1953. She has a, an entry that says, quote, Miss Hume says she wished I was her daughter too. Um, so hmm. it's, uh, Hilda was showing some attention to Pauline, apparently, um, and, and accepting of her. Um, really? And when Juliet's tuberculosis flared up and landed her in the hospital for an extended stay, Pauline's mother viewed it as an opportunity to have her daughter spend some time apart from someone she viewed as a bad influence. So you see the other side where Pauline's mother's directly trying to separate them. And Hilda Hume, uh, Juliet's mother, is is doing quite the opposite, allowing... The, allowing um, Allowing Pauline to be around, stay the night, actually kind of treating her like another daughter. I was about to say, maybe treating her better than her daughter. It seems weird yeah. that if uh, if Pauline wanted to stay with maybe her, maybe she wanted, maybe maybe she was treating Pauline so well because Pauline kept Juliet busy. And <gasps> you remember we how we mentioned uh, she was she wouldn't stop bothering her. She needed so much attention. Yes, it's possible Hilda was like, finally, she's got someone that she. You know, she can leave me alone, yes, finally. Pauline was Juliet's iPad in the 50s. She was like, yes. her mom was like, here, take this friend. Get out of my hair. Yes. Put this in front of your face. Right. Wow. Wow. That's a good point, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so Juliet's in the hospital uh, with tuberculosis, and, um, you know, this Pauline's mother looks at this as a chance to, you know, get them some time apart. Um, she doesn't have to worry about her daughter's obsession with this other girl for a little while. Um, and on May 15th, 1953, we get an entry from Pauline that says, Miss Hume told me that they had found out today that Juliet has tuberculosis on her, on one lung. Poor Julietta. It is only now that I realize how fond of her I am. I nearly fainted when I heard. I had a terrible job not to cry. I would be wonderful if I could get tuberculosis too. Wow. So she wants to have tuberculosis now just so that she can be in the hospital side by side with Juliet. Right. Well, she wants to experience everything that Juliet has. She wants to connect mm-hmm. with her on every level. You know, she doesn't yeah. want there to be a, a brick missing in their friendship, in their relationship. Mm-hmm. That's insane. And um, so while Juliet was in the hospital, Pauline wrote to her relentlessly. In fact, Pauline was pretty much the only person that kept in contact with Juliet while she was in the hospital. I think Juliet's mother came to visit her like one time. Wow. Um, and she was pretty much lonely in there. And Pauline was writing to her. And their correspondence uh, in their letters included fantasies in which they were male, male characters, Juliet being Prince Charles and Pauline being Lance. Oh, okay. So they were writing these elaborate stories to each other, and then at the end of the stories that they would write uh, in their letters, they would just have like a little bit of actual, you know, real world, like, uh, I'm doing good, you know, type of thing. But it was yeah. just them entertaining each other. And you know what I'm noticing here as this relationship goes on? I'm noticing that Juliet is starting to kind of take the reins. You know, even yes. in Juliet became the more kind of a dominant figure right. of the two. She was always the lead character in the plays. Exactly, and, and you, this is evident even from these names that they pick and these characters. Like for Juliet gets to be Prince Charles, and Pauline is mm-hmm. Lance. Yeah, <laughs> it's like yeah, okay. Well, you can be Lance, okay, Pauline. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, Pauline would be grateful to be Lance. Although it was, I, I heard that uh, this this event where you know uh, Juliet lands herself in the hospital. And uh, Pauline continues to write to her. It kind of evened the playing field a little bit. Like for there, for a while there, Juliet was becoming more and more domineering in their relationship. But this, this she felt almost indebted to Pauline mm-hmm. for her continuing to write her while she was in the hospital. Oh, I see. And it kind of like it, it evened out their relationship a little bit, and and kind of made their obsession equal again. I got you. I got you. Okay. <clears throat> and so uh, this. 
uh, on November 50, uh, September 9th, 1953, um, we get an entry from the diary that says, quote, it was a wonderful returning with Juliet. It was as if she had never been away. I believe I could fall in love with Juliet. So Juliet's finally out of the hospital around this time. Mm-hmm. Um, we get another entry on de- in December of 1953. Quote, mother woke me this morning and started lecturing me before I was properly awake, which I thought was somewhat unfair. She has brought up the most pos- worst possible threat now. She said that if I if my health did not improve, I could never see the Humes again. And this is Pauline's Humes diary. Would be the Juliet's family. And this is Pauline's mother saying that she can, if she doesn't uh, get better, that she can never see the Humes again. Right, right. She basically, uh, Pauline's mother's looking for any reason to cut her off from Juliet. Right, right. Yeah, that's obvious. Uh, by 19- that's, a, that's a weird situation yeah. to be in when your child is doing something you don't approve of and, and maybe you know that it's going, to, it's going down a bad road, but they're not doing anything wrong, per se. They're not going against no, any weren't. rules. You know what I mean? No. Being, being a really good friend and wanting to be around someone else is not doing something wrong. And her daughter was finally happy. And she had a reason to get up in the morning, you know. That's right. And that was something that Juliet talked much, talked about much much later. Was that part of their relationship was that she felt like she had to, uh, to to be around Pauline as much as possible and keep her happy because Pauline was, uh, she was concerned that Pauline might take her own life. Right. And like their relationship, she knew kept Pauline happy and, and kept her moving forward. Right. And with Pauline's illness, like it kept her more secluded for a longer period of time than Juliet. Ju- I think Juliet was more socialized growing up. I think with yeah, Juliet moved around exactly. different countries and with, was a lot, around a lot right. of people. Right, and with her parents, you know, social class and whatnot. They, I'm sure she met a lot of people and was exposed to a lot of people. But Pauline, on the other hand, with her illness, not being able to go to school at all. A lot, especially during formative years. And it seemed as though Pauline had never even left New Zealand, right? Right. She, was, she, she grew up in Christchurch and was had always been right. there. But she didn't even, she wasn't even able to connect with anyone in Christchurch because of her illnesses. Mm-hmm. So when she met someone like this that was close to her, I mean, it's obvious it's why she would latch on to her. And then it would be obvious as to why Juliet would feel such responsibility because Pauline has no one else, not even her mother. She hates her yeah. mother now. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. now Juliet's like, I, I really am all she has. You would think as, I don't know, if I were Pauline's mother, I would be, I would be just so happy that she found someone that makes her happy, you know, regardless. Right. It's unfortunate that she was so concerned about her daughter being lesbian that that was like the biggest deal ever. Yep. You know, because it doesn't matter. It was a, a person that your daughter was very happy to be around and she was happy for once. You know, it's like it didn't have to be that. Yeah, they were fantasizing and then doing all kinds of things that were out of the norm, I guess, at the time. Yeah. But she was happy. That's that's generally what you want your child child, child to be, is happy and healthy, right? Right. The I health mean, thing that's is always what you an should. issue. And now she has a chance to be happy nonetheless. I saw I saw a quote one time. It said, never be ashamed of who you are. That's your parent's job. <laughs> yeah. yeah <laughs> I right. mean, it's so true. It's so true. And it hit me mm-hmm. it hit me heavy as a parent. You know what I mean? It's like, why why do I not want my kid to go out wearing that? It's like why? Why? Yeah. He he wants to wear it. He thinks he looks good in it. Why? Oh, because of me. Because of the way it's going to reflect on me. You know. Now times that by ten. If you live in Christchurch, New Zealand, and your daughter appears to be a lesbian, and it's the fifties. Times it by a million. Actually, forget that because they're, mm-hmm. you know, probably devout Catholics in the fifties. Exactly. So. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. So um, by 1954, when the girls were about six, uh, about 15, Pauline's parents had become concerned about uh, their daughter's obsessive behavior uh, enough to take her to a psychiatrist. So Pauline's mother takes Pauline to a psychiatrist, and from what I heard, they the the parents, Pauline's parents, went in and talked to the psychiatrist first, like briefed him on what was going on, and then the psychiatrist brought in Pauline talked to her for a while and made the determination that Pauline was indeed in a sexual relationship with Juliet in his opinion. And that's what this whole thing was about. And 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 I don't think that's standard practice to have the parents go in and, and talk first with the, the psychiatrist. I think they want, don't they want like a clean slate? Like just send the kid in, I'll talk to him and I'll make my determination. I don't need your opinions coming at me first. Yeah. And you know, some of that responsibility uh, relies on that psychiatrist too. It's like, you know, what's more important to them? Do they want to properly diagnose this child or do they just want this parents to keep, to like this psychiatrist and they right. just want to do whatever the parents want them to do for that child and diagnose mm-hmm. them in the way that they see fit, you know? Because yeah. you, you know who's signing the checks at the end of the day. It ain't the kid. That's right. And now that the parents got uh, proof that their daughter is in a sexual relationship like they thought she was because the psychiatrist says so. <laughs> Apparently. More reason right. to cut off Pauline from uh, from her friend. Yeah, no physical or nothing. They didn't. They didn't do anything else. Just just psychiatrist. Yeah, exactly. yeah I got gotcha. you. Yeah. So around the same time, Juliet went into her mother's room with intention of telling her about her and Pauline's plans to move to America, specifically Hollywood. But when she entered the room, she found her mom sleeping with a man that was not her father. Uh oh. Hilda told her daughter that her father knew her father Henry knew about the man and that they were all planning to live together. Oh, um, one big happy family. <laughs> you got yeah. two dads now. Yeah. Because your other dad's not here so much, so I thought I'd get you another one. Right. <laughs> and he helps me out with some things around here. Right, of course. Of course. <clears throat> <laughs> um, and, and Henry may or may not have known about this lover that his wife had, but he was also having an affair, so who was he to judge? Oh, so well, there you go. Juliet's yeah. parents were a bit of a mess at this right. time. <laughs> or maybe maybe that's just how they, that's just how they had open marriage. And maybe that was just yeah. how Juliet found out about it. I thought I thought when I first heard this that Hilda's Hilda was you know just trying to to lie to her daughter. Oh yeah, your father knows yada yada. Right. Uh, and I was like bullshit. But then later, uh, there is proof that both the Hilda's lover and uh, Juliet's father were at the house at one time later on in the story. So I'm like, okay, maybe they were all just kind of living. Yeah, maybe <laughs> cohesively together. You know. Right. Like I said, maybe they just had an open relationship. Yeah. Pretty cutting edge stuff for the fifties. It would, but def- but not unheard of. Just you wouldn't hear of it. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't see it on sitcoms. In sitcoms, yeah. even married couples were sleeping in different beds and stuff. At oh, this time. yeah, I know, I know. That's hilarious. So with all that was going on, Henry decided it was time to move back to England. So Juliet's father's going to move away, going back to England. His plan was to take Juliet with him, but not right away. He was going to drop her off in South Africa. So typical, right? The parents yeah. just ditching her again in another country. That's right. Uh-oh. Just drop her off in South Africa for a little while. That'll keep her busy. <laughs> Yeah, um, she was supposed to stay with family until he was settled in in, in uh, back in England, and then he would come get her and bring her to England. Um, the girls, upon hearing this, decided that they would do whatever they could to go together to South Africa. And once they were in South Africa, they figured, okay, we won't. Our parents will be gone. You know, uh-huh. we'll be waiting for supposedly waiting for my dad to come get us. But that's our chance. We can get away to America and never look back. Um, in these yeah. plans, however, there was one big obstacle, of course, Pauline's mother. She was not going to let Pauline go to South Africa with 
with, uh, with her girlfriend. Right. I, Julia, I kinda, that was not going to happen. Yeah, I see what's going on here. I see, I see how yeah, this is... Yeah, you can see where this is going, yeah, right? I mean, I, you could see, I'm sure, if you have any intuition into true crime, you could see where this, <laughs> this thing was going all along. This was, someone was always in the way, and it was always Pauline's mom. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and so let's dive into Pauline's diary quite a bit here to find out what was going on in her mind during this time. February 13th, 1954, speaking about her mother in her diary, uh, Pauline says, quote, she is most unreasonable. I also overheard her making insult rem- insulting remarks about Mrs. Hume while I was ringing in this afternoon. I was livid. I am very glad because the Humes sympathize with me and it is nice to feel that adults realize what mother, doc- mother is. Dr. Hume is going to do something about it, I think. Why could mother not die? Dozens of people are dying all the time. Thousands. So why not mother and father too? Life is very hard. Wow. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's kind of funny. That, like, the life is very hard, right? That's just such a typical teenager thing. It's like, why can't everyone Why can I don't mother like and father just... not die? Life is so hard. <laughs> right. Why can't everyone who inconveniences me just die? Then there would be like I know. those people. Thousands of people are patient. dying. Why not them? Yeah. God, why not the people I want to die? <sighs> right. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's so self-absorbed. But how could you yeah. expect her to be any other way? I know. She's always lived in Pauline world. Mm-hmm. Mm. So in 1954, the girls began to devise a murderous plan, not based in fantasy, but in reality. As evidenced by Pauline's diary, which was later used as evidence against them, we get uh, an entry on April 28th, 1954, that says, quote, I've, had, I've felt rather tired today, but fortunately, the time at Digsby's went rather quickly. Mother went out this afternoon, so Deborah and I bathed for some time, Deborah being Juliet. Right. Uh, however, I felt thoroughly depressed afterwards and even quite seriously considered committing, committing suicide. Life seemed so much not worth living and death such an f- easy way out. Anger against Mother boiled up inside of me, as it is she who is the one, one of the main obstacles in my path. Suddenly, a means of ridding myself of this obstacle occurred to me. If she were to die, I spent the evening writing and managed to finish my chapter. And then the next day on April 29th, 1954, she writes, I did not tell Deborah of my plans for removing mother. I have made no definite plans yet as the, as the last fate I wish to meet is one of one in Borstal. I am trying to think of some way. I do not want to go through much, too much trouble, but I want it to appear either natural or an accidental death. So she doesn't want to go to jail. She wants to make it appear as though her mother died uh, of an accident. Right. Um, and she hasn't told Juliet yet, but the next day on April 30th, she writes, I told Deborah of my intentions and she is rather worried, but does not disagree violently. It is now 1030. Wow. That's all she needed. Now the plan is being hatched. Uh, It's being accepted by Julia. She was a little resistant, but she sees why it's necessary, I guess, for their future. She needed someone to disagree violently here, though. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) that's true. I I just thought that was so funny because the fact that she chose to write those words means she was looking for that. She probably expected her to be like, what? No, 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 no. We are not killing your mom. Like, no matter what, no. And when she wasn't, she was like, okay. It just validated it, that that's what they needed to do. The only person I give a shit about on Earth is backing me. So, mm-hmm. I mean, if you're already at the point of suicide, you know, she, if she has, if she doesn't have Deborah or Juliet, she doesn't have anything. And if that person right. backs her, that's all she needs. That's all she needs. That's right. Like basically like Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and so on June 19th, 1954, she writes, quote, we practically finished our books today and our main idea for the day was to moiter mother. M-O-I-D-E-R, Moida. which is funny because we always say moida, Moida. you know? <laughs> you ready for some moida? 
Yeah. It's about to happen. Uh, the notion is not a new one, but this time it is a definite plan which we intend to carry out. We have worked it out carefully, and we are both thrilled by the idea. Oh, Naturally, we feel a trifle nervous, but the pleasure of anticipation is great. I shall not write the plan down here as I shall write it upon when we carry it out, I hope. Wow. So it is coming closer to happening. They've, they've worked out the kinks in the plan. Um, on June 20th, 1954, she writes, I tidied the room and messed about a little bit. Afterwards, we discussed our plans for murdering mother and made them a little clearer. Particularly enough, I have no qualms of conscience. Wow. So not, not worried about it at all. No. Looking forward to it. Looking forward to it. Like it's a day of freedom. Mm-hmm. Wow. Then on June 21st, 1950, did you have something you want to say? No, 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 no. Carry on. Uh, these, I love on these June, diary entries, dude. These, these are so important to the case, and they're so insightful. You don't get this often. Yeah, you don't get, you don't get uh, you know, a murderer's thoughts leading up to it very often in this much detail. Absolutely not. What was going on in their head, the excitement, that type of thing. Right. It's interesting. So on June 21st, 1954, she writes, quote, I rose late and helped mother vigorously this morning. Deborah rang and we decided to use a brick and a stocking rather than a sandbag. We discussed the murder foil, uh, the moiter the fully. Moida. I feel <laughs> the moida fully. I very, I feel very keyed up as though I were planning a surprise party. Mother has fallen in with everything beautifully and the happy event is to take the happy event is to take place tomorrow afternoon. So next time I write in this diary, mother will be dead. How odd, yet I feel pleasing. I have discussed various odd saints with her today as I thought it would be interesting to have her opinion. Oh my gosh, that's creepy. She's like getting her opinion on life things, yeah, knowing that she's going to be dead tomorrow. Exactly, exactly. Oh, before you she, go, uh, how do you make that cornbread yeah. you're always making? That is delicious. Yeah, can I get the recipe? Can I get that? Also, how much sugar in your tea? Okay, interesting. Oh my goodness. It's dark. I'm sorry. Um, she says, she loathes that and it. I washed my hair this afternoon. I came to bed at quarter to nine. So the next day is the day, June 22nd, like, 1954. Real quick, I like that she is talking about murdering her mom, and then she thinks, I washed my hair this afternoon, was worth noting. Yeah. Um, in yes. the exact same journal entry. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, if you're going to murder your mom, you might as well have some, you know, be bathed. Right, have some clean hair, I guess. Yes. <clears throat> so on June 22nd, 1954... Quote, I am writing the I am writing a little of this the, up this morning before the death. I feel very excited and the night before Christmas ish last night. Oh wow. I did not have pleasant dreams though. I am about to rise. So early in the morning on the day that she is to kill her mother, she's writing in her diary, excited, like as though it's Christmas Eve. Um then mm. the plan was set, the day was here. The girls had planned a nature walk through Victoria Park in Christchurch with only them and Pauline's mother, Honora. Um, and they decided they would use a brick and a stocking, which we had alluded so to as one of the more bizarre murder weapons we've ever covered in this podcast. No doubt. Uh, abs- uh, I guess nonetheless effective, assuming the stocking is strong enough to you know hold up when you're swinging a brick within it. Again. I just feel like the stocking would rip, don't you? I, I think so, too. It just depends. It could be some well-made stockings that could have double-stocked. Those 1950 stockings don't fuck around. No, I'm sure no. they're... They, they don't. Pretty hardy. But this is another instance where I'm disappointed in the girls' like creativity. Like you said earlier in the case, it's, it's surprising that they went with this, as imaginative as they are. Um, but I think they thought that it was going to be simple. It was going to be a little on the head, yeah, and she's going to be out. She'd be dead. And there'd be, no, you know, there'd be no blood, there'd be no, 
no lacerations and everything will be fine. Mm-hmm. Like like in a play, you know, like in, in a movie right. or like in some of those old school plays, like one hit and they go down, they're dead. Yeah, a little conk on the head, they're gone. Yeah. Just like that. Yeah, no, that's not how life works. No. <laughs> Human beings are more resilient. We're, it's going to take more than that, as we've, we've come to know. It takes, it's more, it takes more to strangle someone than you think, and it takes more to kill someone typically than you think, especially when you try to bludgeon them. Yeah, and these girls found that out the hard way. Yeah. So, yeah, because, I mean, they really didn't think it's, as far as getting away with murder, this is not a, a foolproof plan here. <laughs> oh, no? A, by any means. Oh, no? Yeah, don't take notes from them. All right. Yeah. So on the afternoon of June 22nd, 1954, Juliet headed off to meet with Pauline and Honora. As she left her house, she grabbed a broken half brick from near the garage. This will do. She wrapped it in paper and put it in her bag. So that the brick came from, uh, from Juliet's house by her garage. Upon arriving at Pauline's house, Juliet gave the brick to Pauline, who slipped it inside of a stocking and put it in her bag. The girls had lunch at a tea kiosk with Honora, um, so they went to the park at the park. There was like a little, you know, tea kiosk and they can, they could have a snack and some tea Right. and they set off on their walk and it was only approximately about 400 feet down the path into a wooded, uh, secluded area of the park near a small wooden bridge. Juliet had this, uh, this is part of their theatrics. She had this pink stone with her that she planned, that she planned this out. She acts like, oops, I dropped my pink stone. Right. And when Honora bent over to retrieve the stone for her, the girl's made their move and mm-hmm. it was uh pauline who struck first with the brick uh smashing it onto her her mother's head and at a certain point juliet took over um tackled honora to the ground and finished the job beating her with the brick over and over and as you said it was not as they had imagined it one strike and you're done right honora you know kept fighting and was not making it easy for them. Right. She had a lot of uh, injuries to her hands and to her fingers, so you know she, she had was, defensive she, wounds. Yeah, she had she was trying to fight them the entire time, but they struck mm-hmm. her over 20 times. Yeah, over with a brick in a stocking. Very brutal. Very brutal murder. It is. And by the end of it they were basically covered in blood, you know, and it's like this this is supposed to be an accident, like uh Honora, just people are supposed to believe that Honora just kind of tripped and fell she, and hit her head on a rock and yeah. yet you guys are covered in blood. Yeah. She's bludgeoned. She's got marks all over her hands, multiple lacerations and and lumps and stuff on her head. Yeah. Like, this is this does doesn't look like someone tripped and fell. No, it doesn't. Means. But you see in the fourth world, the police aren't very good. So yeah, they're not used exactly. to this type of investigation being done, you know, a basic one. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, in the fourth world, uh, the police show up, they go, clearly this was an accident, <laughs> and then they start dancing and singing opera. We know that because that's what you told us. Da, 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 yes. Da, 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 da. Yeah, <laughs> got you. Yes. And now, Juliet and Pauline, <laughs> you may go on and live your lives. <laughs> You're free, emancipated da, 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 da. from overbearing mother. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's how they, I guarantee you that's how they imagined it. <laughs> yeah. So after committing the murder, the girls fled, covered in blood, back to the tea kiosk where they had just had tea minutes before with Honora. Right. Remember us? Um, we were here earlier. They were, we're bloody now, but that's yeah. not the point. The point is my mom fell. <laughs> yeah. How do you bring... So oh, God. the owners of the tea kiosk uh, were Kenneth and Agnes Ritchie, um, with whom they you know, just met this, this trio right. minutes prior. Um, and now the, the girls come running back covered in blood, and they told... Uh, they told the owners of this kiosk that uh, their mother had fallen and hit her head. Um, and so Kenneth Ritchie, the owner, he goes back into the park where they told, you know, where they told him that the, the mother had fallen. 
and he discovers her uh, dead, laying there. Major lacerations were found about her head, neck, and face with minor injuries to her fingers. Um, he calls Juliet's father uh, upon their request, and he comes and picks them up before the police could arrive. He also calls the police, obviously. The police arrive. The girls are gone. They discover you know, the bludgeoned body uh, of Honora, and nice. they also find nearby in the woods the murder weapon, oh, a brick no and shit. a stocking. And they knew clearly this was no accident. Um, wow. Back at the Humes residence, police called and told them that they were on their way to the house. Kind of stupid. I don't know why you would do that. Like, hey, we're on our way if you want to cover any evidence up and uh, think of a, a good story. Because of who they are in society, how respected it they are. It may have been Henry Humes' influence it, for sure. Yeah. The guy was, as we said, a, a very well-known scientist. That's exactly what um, it was, yeah. A respected man, so may, they may have gave him a heads up to like, hey, Get, tell your daughter to, to cover up any evidence. Yeah, he's the, coming. he's the director of the college in Christchurch, you mm -hmm. know? I mean, or at least one of them. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, yep. I think he's probably pretty renowned. Yeah, so having time to prepare, um, Hilda did her best to to help the girls avoid arrest. While the girls slept, I mean, this is where I was talking about earlier, how I, I, I guessed that um, uh, Juliet's father was kind of okay with his wife's... Uh, lover on the side because he was at the house he had given sleeping pills uh juliet's mother's lover had given the girls sleeping pills and they were knocked out by the time the police got there they were asleep mm -hmm. um meanwhile juliet's father's also there he's the one who wouldn't pick them up at the park so like there is this kind of weird scenario uh, going on yeah. back at the house I see what you're saying yeah that's kind of glazed um, meanwhile over. <laughs> hilda juliet's mother yeah meanwhile juliet uh hilda juliet's mother is doing her best to cover any evidence that she can uh, she found Pauline's diary, one of them. She had several. She had some back at her house. She also had one she brought with her over there. Um, she hid the diary and then woke the girls up to let them know that the police were on their way and to get their story straight. Um, and when the police arrived, they talked to Pauline first. Um, they, she repeated the same story over and over about her mom falling and hitting her head on a rock. Mm -hmm. they, they, of course, were not buying it, but she stuck to it. They then talked to Juliet alone, and the problem was that her story didn't match up. She said that she had wandered off alone, and when she returned, Pauline was standing over Honora, freaking out. So she, she misplaced blame. Like she took she took she, blame off of herself say, and put it on Pauline. Made it look, right. made Pauline look guilty. About solely. To say, she took herself out of the crime scene altogether. She sold Pauline down the river. Yeah, she did. Yeah, she did. Uh, mm, when so Pauline when was police there brought for you. Juliet's. Yeah, exactly. Damn, Juliet. It's cold. So when police brought Juliet's version back to Pauline, she confessed, kind of. She told police that she killed her mother and that Juliet had nothing to do with it. She mm -hmm. Juliet had, in fact, wandered off and that she decided to do it. And for this, Pauline was arrested. Juliet, it seemed, had gotten away with murder. Pauline had backed her up, basically took the blame, Yeah, took the brunt of it. Yeah, she did. And um, she had full intention of doing that. I think she was fine with that, even. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she could have lived with that. Um, however, while Pauline was in jail, she started another diary. Oh, These diaries, it. man. Damn it, Pauline. Stop writing. Haven't you learned anything? <laughs> Just, right? <laughs> Why so in her new diary that she was writing while in jail, she talked about how she had helped Juliet get away with murder. The guards, uh, you know, that she had, Juliet had played a role in that, you know, she had uh, basically saved her friend from going down. She played a um, big role, dude. A really big role. No like, doubt. It's insane that she... That she took the blame like this. It really is. Mm -hmm. It really is. Uh, the guards at the jail, of course, would, would find her diary, read it, and report ah. back to the police what they had read. Uh, police then went to Pauline's house and found her old diary 
in which they found evidence of the plot to kill Honora, uh, of which Juliet was clearly a part of. Right. Um, and when they confronted Juliet again, she she folded. She gave in and confessed to her role in the murder. And amazingly, she was placed in the same jail cell as Pauline. So they got to hang out what? even further in jail. They got with. <laughs> that's why Pauline wrote that shit. She was like, maybe they'll put her in here with me. And we can be together yeah, again. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, the guards maybe found we'll my diary. Just live our lives out in prison. <laughs> we'll be happy writing plays and acting them out for the rest of the inmates. <laughs> Juliet gets in there. She's like all pissed at her. Pauline's like, I didn't know they were going to read it. I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> Bullshit, Pauline. You know they were going <laughs> to... No, it sounds like they were in jail and they were just happily hanging out as usual. Yeah, I'm like, sure. I'm sure they were. Smiling, laughing, hey, together again. It's, it's them against the world. What difference does it make? Yeah. Yeah. And so now that this arrest had been made public, the the murder uh, was got out there. New Zealand had never seen such a sensational crime and public interest was bountiful. Two teenage girls, possibly in a gay relationship, entrenched in a world of fantasy, killing the mother that tried to stop them from living out their lives with a brick. I mean, could you get more perfect for the tabloids? I don't think so. And in the 50s, I mean, that's as bizarre as it gets. No doubt, man. This this has like Slenderman, Slenderman vibes, you know? Yeah. Man, it's crazy. Or like so many cases, like uh, like the prom night murders, so many of those cases where someone just got mm-hmm. obsessed with something and the parents stood in the way. Yep. <clears throat> Young love, man. Don't get in the the way of young teenage love. Ah, let them be stupid. Give them condoms. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> that should be a t-shirt, dude, right there. <laughs> That's a good one. Let them be stupid. Give them condoms. <laughs> oh, uh, I'm joking, man. But once they're so, over 18, sometimes you got to let, let people learn with their mistakes. You know? Yeah. You do. Yeah. So the, in this case, the girls' defense attorneys were facing an uphill battle. They, they, they were facing full confessions, diaries with murder plots, and plenty of physical evidence. They had no choice but to enter a guilty by reason of insanity play, plea for their clients, um, which brought about something that we had never heard of, a French term um, and a, an actual disorder called folie adieu, folie or adieu. madness for two. Folie adieu, madness for two. <laughs> Uh, also known as a shared psychosis or shared delusional disorder, SDD. It's a psychiatric syndrome in which symptoms of a delusional belief and sometimes hallucinations are transmitted from one individual to another, much like a virus. You basically share your delusional disorder with someone. Right, and then the more you share it with them and then they share back, the more convinced you are that it is real. Right. So in this case, who do you think would have been the one that had it and shared it with the other, Juliet or Pauline? Pauline to Juliet or Juliet to Pauline? Who do you think, if you're going off of this, uh, you know, this psychological assessment and you're saying that they, that they had fully ado, madness for two, who was the one that shared the disorder with the other? Um, God, I would say at first... I'm not sure I'd buy it for that reason. I think they both were living in a world of fantasy. They met each other and... I don't know. I don't think either shared necessarily. Well, I think a, I think a, Pauline kind of introduced it, right? And I think Juliet, being being the intelligent, the leader, the one with you know a little more social skills and whatnot, and she was a born writer, it seems, mm-hmm. uh, kind of took the reins and ran with it. And having someone who Pauline looked up to like her work, and not only like it but add to it. And and have mm-hmm. that kind of love and, and shared interest in it, I think that just made her believe in it, finally. She's like, mm-hmm. someone of this standard, someone that I look up to and I appreciate and I'm inspired by, likes my work. Like, oh, shit. 
Yeah. And it, you know, it could increase that that belief in it. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, um, Inter- it's interesting. It is. It's interesting. It's, I'm not. I mean, it, and ultimately, it didn't. It didn't change anything as far as the courts were concerned. They they still deemed the girls fit for trial, and the show was on as far as the trial was concerned. And throughout the legal process, the girls were cold and callous, except towards themselves. They showed no remorse, and they were smirking and, and giggling with each other anytime they saw each other, smiling at each other, and they were just cold with everyone else. Incredible. Um, and yeah, and they, they, as I said, showed no remorse. They said that they would do it all again if it meant you know them being together. Mm-hmm. Uh, the trial was, of course, a sensational affair with speculation about their possible lesbianism and insanity. During the trial, the girls frequently smiled and giggled, as I said, and the girls ended up being convicted after only two and a half hours of deliberation on August 28, 1954. But as they were minors, they were too young to be considered for the death penalty, and they each actually only spent five years. They were, they were sentenced to five years in separate prisons. Oh, my God, that's insane. Right? That five years is for not bludgeoning enough. the mother to death with a brick. I'm sorry, like... 14, 15 years old. In the 1950s, there were women who were married with two or three children at this age. Like, you can't, right. you have to be held more accountable. it was clearly premeditated, thought out. It wasn't a pa- like a crime of passion. It was, right. it was premeditated Evidence, for months. multiple diary yes. entries and written they by the They knew damn killers. well what they were doing. They knew exactly what they were doing. Five years is not enough, man. That's, that's a slap on the wrist. Yeah, and ultimately, it, 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 it honestly, it worked out, but... That doesn't mean it was right what they did. Like giving them only five years for this, I think uh, they definitely should have gotten longer sentences. But in this particular case, it did happen to work out. They were put in separate prisons. Right. Uh, when they got out, they never saw each other again. Never talked to each other again, as far as we know. They went on to live peaceful, uh, caring lives. They did show remorse. They became uh, very heavily uh, religious mm-hmm. in different sects. One Mormon and one. Uh, Catholic. Okay. Um, so we'll go through that. But it, it, it did, they did, the five years did them good. Being apart from each other, Absolutely. I think, did more good for five years. That was the biggest part of well, it. it like if they would have put them in the same prison together, whoa boy, that would have just been bad. Yeah, exactly. It, it gave them a time to come up for air. It come up out of the, the, fourth, yeah. the fourth world uh, universe yeah. that they were living in and come up for air and see what else Get is going on. Get away from the intoxication of each other. That's right. They were so intoxicated by each other, they just forgot about all reality and and nothing else mattered That's right. but each other. That's right. They needed a literal snap back to reality. <laughs> yeah. So after serving the five years in separate prisons, Juliet's release was unconditional, and she immediately rejoined her father, who was at that time in Italy. He was all over the place, man. All over the place, dude. Yeah. And, what uh, a renaissance man. Right. And meanwhile, Pauline was placed on six months parole in New Zealand, after which she left the country. Following her release from prison, Pauline Parker was given a new identity as Hillary Nathan and spent some time in New Zealand under close surveillance before being allowed to leave for England. And from at least 1992 on, she was living in a small village in England and running a children's horse riding school and basically rode off, no pun intended, into the sunset, like never to be heard from again. Um, The only statement we have was from her sister who gave a quote about how she felt these days and basically she said that uh, Pauline committed the most terrible crime and had spent 40 years repaying it by keeping away from people and doing her own little thing. After it happened, she was very sorry about it. It took her about five years to realize what she had done, which is the five years she spent in prison away from yeah. away from the, the presence of Juliet. And so, yeah, she just kind of wrote, like, disappeared. In, well, this in, is what she needed, man. She was, she was an introvert in the truest form of it. 
Mm-hmm. And I think she just needed a place where she could be herself. You see, uh, there's a lot of people that, that turn to horses. I was going to say that. I was like, you know, you it's know? funny that she went to animals. It's almost like she needed that all along. She needed uh, that bond with animals that would have helped her. Yes, that loyalty, that constant affection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's that, that, that animals give, man. They love being in your presence. Yeah. And so after Juliet's release from prison, she spent some time in England and the United States. After settling in England, she became a successful historical detective novelist under her new name, Anne Perry. And she has a ton of books, dude. I looked that shit up. She has, successful is an understatement. She's written a lot of books under this name. What's hilarious that no one knew that Anne Perry was Juliet Hume. Until no. 1994, after the release of a really successful movie about this case called Heavenly Creatures. Mm. So Juliet Hume went on to become Mormon and changed her name to Ann Perry and just moved on. And no one knew that Ann Perry was Juliet Hume. Until right. the release of the 1994 film adaptation of this case called Heavenly Creatures, starring Kate Winslet and Melanie, uh, Melanie Linsky uh, in their feature film de- debut. So this was Kate Winslet's film debut. And it was also directed by Peter Jackson, who went on to obviously direct the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Yeah. This movie has a 92% Rotten Tomatoes score, Heavenly Creatures. It looks like a really good movie. I watched the trailer for it. Yeah, I did too. I did too. I didn't have time to watch the whole movie, but yeah, it, it does look interesting and it looks somewhat accurate. At least the trailer, the way it portrayed it. Yeah, definitely. And, and upon the release of Heavenly Creatures in 1994, Juliet Hume who is now going by you know, the, the name of the author name that she had, Ann Perry, mm-hmm. was finally outed. Uh, she was able to fly under the radar for so many years under that name of Ann Perry, but when the movie was released, uh, a, uh, a person found her, a journalist discovered that Ann Perry was actually Juliet Hume, oh, portrayed no. in that movie, the, the woman who, had, as a young teenage girl, had helped her friend kill her friend's mom. Oh, yeah. Um, and so that, she, she was very... Forthcoming though, once she was discovered that she was Juliet Hume, um, yeah. she came out and did some interviews and stuff and said that, yeah, I mean, I'm a much different person now. I regret doing it, you know, and on and on about that. So she's very, Man, I wonder, very forthcoming I wonder, about it. So I wonder how much that experience influenced her, her crime writing though, you know, even though it was fictional. Oh, for sure. Yeah, it's funny that she went on to write that, you know, right. that genre. Right. She has, she has quite some insight. Into some into some things that a lot yeah, of crime no writers doubt. don't. You know what I'm saying? No doubt. That's that's kind of terrifying. Never had heard about it. Never had heard about it. Just how how have we not week. heard about it? I don't know. That's weird. I don't know how. I There's never so heard much, this dude. Movie. There's so many murders that happen. <laughs> There's so many murders. People are <laughs> dying all the time. Why not mother and right? Yeah, right. I hear you. That's. I mean, even even uh, Pauline felt that way then, man. And they didn't even have. She didn't even have true crime feeds constantly scrolling in front of her face. Right. She's still like, people are dying all the time. Well, it means mainly yep. from diseases, I guess, probably back then. But uh So speaking of disease, you don't yeah. want to smell like one. Get some no. oh my guy. <laughs> nice segue. <laughs> <laughs> we really slid right into that ad. That's right. <laughs> oh my guy, an innovative all natural deodorant fragrance and beard oil company specializing in paraben and aluminum free products. Their innovative line of deodorants inhibit the growth of odor causing bacteria while maintaining effectiveness. At Oh My Gaia, they use only all-natural, paraben, and aluminum-free organic ingredients. And there's lots of scents to choose from, guys, and disease is not one of them. But you can get vanilla, cherry almond, sandalwood, lavender, lemongrass, Egyptian musk, coconut, dreamsicle, leather, lumberjack, honeysuckle, fireside, bergamot, amber. We even have our very own scent called True Crime Pine. 
It's made especially for true crime guys. It has our old school podcast logo on the side. Very cool piece. If you uh, if you don't know what scent to go with, I suggest that one because it'll at least look cool on your shelf if you don't like it. I'm kidding. You'll love it. Uh, there's also Barbershop and Pear, and there's always new scents being rotated in all the time. And because you guys are True Crime Guys listeners, you can use the word creeper for 15% off your order. C-R-E-E-P-E-R. You can get 15% off at ohmygaia.com, O-H-M-Y-G-A-I-A.com, or at shop underscore ohmygaia on Instagram. You guys won't regret it. All right. Uh, definitely check that out. Well worth it. Trust us. Everybody that tries it gives great reviews about it afterwards. Um, so yeah, support small businesses and smell better. And also go and rate and review the show if you have a few minutes and you haven't done so yet. I want to thank everybody who has done so in the last couple of weeks. Last week we did a Patreon exclusive episode. We'll talk about that in a minute. So I'm going back two weeks to the 21st to thank... Uh, we got Cat and Mouse in Canada said crime and inappropriate humor. Best of both worlds. Currently binging all the episodes. Love the mix of true crime and inappropriate humor. Five stars. Thank you, Cat and Mouse in Canada. Then we got uh, Kylie and Miller in the U.S. said best podcast. Five stars. Absolutely hooked. Been binging for about a month since I found y'all. Uh, right on. Thank you, Kylie and Miller. Thanks. Then we got TB Ware in the United States said great all around podcast. Five stars. Uh, with such weighty subjects and murder and violent crime. I like that you guys have some lightheartedness to the podcast. Thank you. <laughs> then we got Ab Skies uh, in Australia, mate. All right. right Love on. from the Blue Mountains, Australia. Five stars, bunch of fire emojis, and a frog. All right, cool. <laughs> and a frog. I really appreciate <laughs> frog the frog in between man, all the fire emojis. I like <laughs> right. that touch. That's nice. <laughs> Uh, then we got Skiba24 in the U.S. Said great shows, five stars, and fire emojis. Thank you. Perfect. And finally, we got... Kaylee Rose 96 in the US said, can't, can't wait to keep binging. From the first episode, I was hooked. You guys' chemistry and accents are amazing. Banter mixed in with the cases keeps me completely absorbed at work. So thank you. Thank you, Kaylee Rose. Yep. Yeah. And so, yeah, like I said, if you guys have a second, go click five stars. Uh, just throw some fire emojis in if you don't feel like writing out a big review. If you do, we'll read it. Uh, and we'll give you a shout out next week. That's so, right. Yeah. Thank you. And as far as that. Patreon, I, I briefly mentioned that we did a Patreon exclusive episode last week. Yes. Uh, Joanna Dennehy Joanna over in the UK. Hey, the UK's murderous most dangerous woman. Yes. Very dangerous woman. Not quite as dangerous as Jody, in our opinion, not, but very dangerous not nonetheless. Not bad. Not bad. She's a, she's a, she's a tough second place. Yeah. You know? <laughs> oh, Joanna Dennehy. Yeah, but, so if you want to hear that, as well as all of the other premium content that we have, patreon.com slash guys. Two bucks a month gets you access to all of all of our premium episodes, um, and five bucks a month gets you into the Just the Banter. We release a new Just the Banter every week. That's right. We try to do it on Fridays. Last couple of weeks, Michael's been slacking and put it up on yeah, Saturday. Yeah, Friday, Saturday, what is it? What's you know? the difference? We got people in different time zones. Who am I to judge? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we record- Somewhere between uh, Friday and Saturday. Yeah, so in Just the Banter, we just sit around and shoot the shit for anywhere from 30 to an hour and a half sometimes, depending on how we're feeling that day. Yep. Talk about anything and everything, and that's that's for $5 and up tiers, as well as if you're a $5 tier, you also get the gold sticker. I just sent out a bunch of stickers today. If, it, if it's been a while since you either donated or you became a $5 patron and you still haven't gotten your sticker, they should be coming this week. Um, I, I do, I send them out once a month for those of you who get upset. It really depends on when you donate. Uh, you, sometimes you end up waiting a month or sometimes you get it like in a few days and you're like, wow, it just depends on when you donated and when I sent them out. Exactly. So exactly. Those are coming. 
$10 a month gets you access. If you're a $10 a month patron, you can talk to us on Zoom. We just talked to one of our listeners, Ashley. Shout out. Yes. I uh, had a fun conversation Thank with her. Thank you, Ashley. So, Very yeah, insightful. let us know. If you're a $10 and up patron, hit us up, email us something, or message us on Patreon. Let us know, and we'll try to schedule something. Absolutely. Absolutely, guys. And if you are been a patron and you guys are all caught up and you're happy with your tier on Patreon, also check out our other show, Strange and Unexplained. Uh, new episodes are released on free platforms every Monday. And if you join Patreon, patreon.com slash podcast for just three bucks a month, you get early access to those episodes. And then you get another show that I do called Strange Shorts every Monday in place of the show that you don't get on Monday anymore. See what I did there? So I'm just trying to fill all your days with True Crime Guys content. That's basically what we're trying to do here. We got, what, like four days yep. out of the week where we release new content now? So yep. we're, we're trying There's to There's more days up. in the week that we do release something than there aren't. Think about that. Think about that for a second. Four out okay. of seven. That's pretty good. It's like over 50%. Not bad. I mean, that's like maybe that's the best batting average of all time. That's on the verge of you getting sick of us. Right, we don't want to push that line too far. That's right. That's right. You need you some days off. every day. We need days off. You need days off. Okay, speaking of, check out our merch, truecrimeguys.threadless.com. And that's all. Now we need to that's get all. off. We need to get off the air. I think that's we're right. done. We're rambling. We are done here. We'll see you all next week. Keep creeping. We love y'all. Keep creeping, guys. True crime, guys. In the desert, we like a mirage. It's okay if you clicked on us because you thought we was true crime garage. Now we ain't mad at you. Sit down, let us talk at you. I'm talking to the creeper army. We out here making murder, get murder, get Do you find a certain irony um, in that you now make a living as a crime writer, having had your background? You know, I'd never thought about it until other people, because really I want to write a novel, and, and a crime is a good peg to hang it on. I suppose pulling a rabbit out of a hat at the end and being able to say to people, yes, you thought it was so and so, and it wasn't, it's not that easy. You thought this person was bad, but actually what they did was for good reasons. You thought this person was good, but actually it wasn't. It's the sense of drama and being able to pull out something to say, there you are. It's not as easy as you thought, is it?